Hey, science nerds, welcome back to another episode of MRSA podcast, where we explore research in various science disciplines at McMaster University and try to bridge the gap between Canada's most research intensive university and the new generation of science leaders it's fostering. My name is Daphne and I'll be your co-host alongside JD. Hello, everyone. Welcome again to MRSA podcast. So today we're honored to be joined by Dr. Julia Daniel from the Department of Biology. Dr. Daniel is a cancer biologist who focuses her research on cell-to-cell adhesion and signaling through transcription factors and how their misregulation contributes to cancer. Earlier in her career, Dr. Daniel identified a novel transcription factor which she named Kaizo, and her lab continues to study Kaizo's role in triple negative breast cancer and colorectal cancer. Her work has earned her numerous awards, including the Ontario Premier's Research Excellence Award, as well as the African-Canadian Achievement Award of Excellence in Science. In addition, Dr. Daniel currently serves as the Associate Dean of Research and External Relations here at McMaster. So, hi, Dr. Daniel. Uh, It's a privilege to have you on the podcast today, and thank you so much for joining us. Good afternoon. Thank you for inviting me to the podcast. So, today we'll be focusing our attention on cancer cell biology, discussing topics such as the characteristics of cancer and cancer cells, triple negative breast cancer, the role of Kaizo as a transcription factor, the applications of your research, and lastly, the role of undergrad students in your research lab. But before we dive into all of that, would you be able to tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself with respect to your academic journey, your research interests, and how you ended up at McMaster University? Sure. Okay. So um, I was born and raised in the Caribbean island of Barbados and always fascinated by nature and science. So when I completed my um, high school, I applied to various universities in Canada and Queens was the most receptive and welcome to me um, compared to the other universities. They treated me like a human before I even got here. And because we didn't even have, like my family didn't have the funding to, to come and actually visit all the different universities. And there was no Google and no Wikipedia in the 1980s. So um, so I came to Queen's University and did my Bachelor's of Science in their Life Sciences program. And after completion of my Life Science degree at Queen's, I heard that Vancouver was the warmest part of Canada. I'd gotten fed up of all the snow and cold and the excitement of that adventure leaving home was over. So I went to UBC to complete my PhD. And in the interim, so I should say just after I finished my bachelor's, a few days before my convocation from Queen's, my mom actually passed away from ovarian cancer. So I had already kind of made a decision to pursue cancer research as a result of that. Um, So at UBC, I did my research with Dr. Jerry Weeks, who was studying a little model organism called a slime mold or Dictyostelium discoidium. A lot of labs don't use it anymore, but it was a pretty cool organism to use um, to study RAS signal transduction. And upon completion of that, I went to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital to work with Dr. Al Reynolds, who was studying cell-cell adhesion, because I was really most interested in that one hallmark of cancer where the cells um, acquire the ability to break away from the primary tumor and spread through the bloodstream or lymphatic system to other vital organs. And so he was studying the main cell adhesion complex that facilitates cell-cell adhesion in epithelial cells. So I moved to his lab at St. Jude's Children's Hospital in Memphis to study that. Halfway through my postdoc with him, we moved the entire lab to Vanderbilt University. And it was there that I cloned and discovered the gene that I called Kaiso. And after six years with Al, I um, 
applied for jobs across Canada and I was recruited here at McMaster and I've been at McMaster since 1999. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing your journey with us. So um, just to get into our talk about cancer biology, I know you already touched upon how cell cell adhesion um, is implicated in cancer development. Maybe you can uh, elaborate on that and also talk about how um, transcription factors um, play into that as well. Yeah, so all epithelial cells, so most cancers actually originate from the epithelial layers of the, the various tissues, whether it be the breast or the pancreas or the prostate. And what um, several research, many researchers, not several, many researchers over the decades have found is that the cell adhesion complex that's mediated by the transmembrane protein E-cadherin, 50% of meta human metastatic tumors have a defective cell-to-cell -cell adhesion process. So implicating or suggesting that it's the malfunction of that cell adhesion that actually allows the cell to break away from the primary tumor and spread to other organs. And that's why, as I said, I chose Dr. Reynolds lab, because if, we, if, the, if the tumor stayed in one place, whether it be the breast or the prostate, then the survival rate of most patients would go up, right? The, the reason many people die is because the tumor spread to vital organs such as the brain or the lung or the liver. So uh, that's why I wanted to study that aspect of um, tumor progression, yeah. Awesome, thank you for sharing. And I agree, yeah, this, this problem of metastasis is what you know, makes uh, uh, treating cancers really difficult. And to touch upon some of the research methodologies in your lab, I was just curious if you could share to our listeners uh, what sort of lab techniques and animal models do you use to elucidate, uh, elucidate these cancer biology mechanisms in your lab? So it's a whole spectrum. So as I was trained as a molecular cell biologist, so a lot of the techniques that we use are molecular cell biology techniques. So that would be um, immuno, immuno blotting, or some people call it Western blotting, DNA gel electrophoresis. Um, then we've got RT-PCR, PCR, as you all know, immunofluorescence, cell culture, looking at our cells under the microscope. Um, then of course we've got there's all these other new techniques chromatin immunoprecipitation um, where you're looking to see whether or not your protein or transcription factor of interest is binding to the dna in vivo in a cell then we've got our promoter reporter assays or gel shift assays or used to have been assays yeah the list goes on and on um, and also when we're looking in human tissues we're looking at in, we use immunohistochemistry where we're staining actual tissue sections um, yeah, it's a whole spectrum. And so with respect to models in our lab, we use cell culture models and we use mouse models. And as I said, we use human tissues, tumor tissues as well. Yeah, so just to um, elaborate on that, um, why are um, mice a good model for studying cancer and how translatable is that research into humans? Uh, it's not necessarily that translatable per se, but the mouse is a good model because one, it's small, it's, they reproduce at a relatively decent time frame. They're mammals as well. So they have very, very similar um, signaling, signal transduction pathways. Many of the proteins in humans, they're, home, um, they're murine homologs. So we know that the proteins are doing similar things in the mouse as well. Um, so it's, it's a really easy to manipulate, well, relatively easy to manipulate model system. And it's just been historically used for decades. Many of the other models that might be more amenable 
such as monkeys, etc. Like they're just so much bigger. It they're they'll be more expensive and difficult to manage. Also, we have like the you know the full genome of the mouse's sequence. Like it just make the genetics as well of the mouse is already is pretty well characterized. So it makes it a lot easier to study using mouse models. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Daniel. And now to transition to the main section of this podcast, we're going to talk about the highlight of your career and the transcription that factor that you continue to work on, Kaizo. And we'll be discussing Kaizo, uh, its implication in triple negative breast cancer, as well as the distribution of triple negative breast cancer with respect to uh, racial disparities that are associated with it. So to, just to start off, for our listeners, could you introduce this transcription factor, Kaizo, and maybe briefly elaborate on how you were able to identify this early on in your career. Yeah, so um, as I said, I, I, when I moved to Memphis to work with Al Reynolds, I wanted to study cell-cell adhesion. And he himself, as a postdoc, had identified a new protein, P120 catenin, that was a substrate of the SARC kinase, one of the first oncogenes identified in the 1980s that actually um, contributed to the development of tumors in chickens and, and other model organisms. So he did his postdoc studying the SART kinase oncogene to, to gain insight into how that oncogene worked and possible mechanisms. So when I joined his lab, he was trying to understand P120 and what it did. And he realized that it was structurally similar to one of the catenin proteins in the E-cadherin cell adhesion complex. So my project when I joined his lab was to basically characterize P120, because I think when I joined his lab, he had only been a professor about two and a half to three years. And so my, my, my project was to characterize P120. And one of the things, the best way to learn about another protein and what it does is to try to identify proteins, that other proteins that bind to it. Because if you can identify other proteins that bind to it and you know what those proteins do, then it tells you what the protein you're interested in is doing. But as fate would have it, when I did that screen, I did a yeast to hybrid screen, the protein, the gene most frequently pulled out encoded a novel transcription factor that hadn't even been characterized before. And that's the one that I named Kaizo. So we didn't really learn a lot about P120 because Kaizo itself was an unknown entity, but it, it basically gave me a project that I could then develop on my own and start my own lab. But what it did teach us was that, you know, this cell adhesion protein P120 is at the cell membrane and it's interacting with a transcription factor, which is, you know, would most likely be in the nucleus. So that was the, actually the first hint that P120 underwent nucleocytoplasmic trafficking in and out of the nucleus. And the reason we continued even studying Kaizo is because there had been preliminary reports from another lab that was studying beta-catenin and they had found beta-catenin was trafficking in and out of the nucleus. So when we cloned Kaizo, my supervisor said, hmm, maybe it is going to be like beta-catenin and traffic in and out of the nucleus. So, okay, let's keep working on it. If we hadn't heard about that other report, we would not have even continued studying Kaizo because at the time, no one thought that proteins at the membrane ever went into the nucleus because we had this idea everything was static and it's like, if you're a membrane protein, you're a membrane protein. If you're a cytoplasmic protein, you're a cytoplasmic protein. And if you're nuclear protein, you're nuclear protein. You know, we, the only proteins we knew that went in and out the nucleus were some transcription factors, but the idea of a protein that is attached to the cell membrane would somehow end up in the nucleus was a very novel idea in the, um, I guess, 1990s when I, when I cloned it. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's, that's great. Like, it's just to see the whole process of how you um, discovered Kaizo. And so I think we were talking a little bit about this. So um, um, studying Kaizo and its interaction with P120 um, and finding out that later on that it has a role in breast cancers, could you kind of describe um, how cellular localization of Kaizo affects its role in breast cancers and maybe describe how um, P120 catenin is involved in the regulation of Kaiso's localization? Um, so let's see which one to begin. Um, so, <laughs> so in um, the studies that we've done looking at Kaizo in triple negative breast cancer in triple negative tissues from black women, we found that the Kaizo, first of all, is highly expressed in triple negative breast cancer tumors and very highly expressed in triple negative tumors from black women. And that high expression occurs predominantly in the nucleus, but there's also significantly high expression in the cytoplasm, probably because there's just so much Kaizo being expressed. It's present everywhere in the cell. P120, we believe, plays a role in the nucleocytoplasmic trafficking of Kaizo, but we haven't done those definitive experiments to prove that P120 controls that, like, um, and, you know, def definitely uh, regulates it, but we know that P120 plays a role in that nucleocytoplasmic trafficking of Kaizo. Awesome. And just a follow-up question to that, specifically regarding Kaizo, uh, we've seen in previous research as well as in previous interviews, uh, previous interviews that you've done uh, regarding the specificity of Kaizo when it binds to uh, its uh, DNA sequences. So does Kaizo bind to one specific uh, sequence at the promoter of certain genes, or is there variability in its binding sites? Yeah, so again, as I said, this this gene, Kaizo, Kaizo has not been the easiest of genes to study, but I figure that, that, you know, that means that it's doing something really important because if it was really easy, then someone else would have discovered it a long time ago. Um, so Kaizo binds multiple types of DNA. It binds to a Kaizo-specific sequence that we call a Kaizo binding site but it also binds to CPG then nucleotides. And so if there's a promoter that has a, what we call a CPG island with multiple CPG then nucleotides, then Kaizo is also likely to bind that region of the promoter and regulate gene expression. And then there's another sequence, another specific sequence that we call the Blattler sequence, which is based on the author of the paper that published it to help us differentiate from the Kaizo binding site, the CPG site, which, and then the Blattler site. So that also complicates the study of Kaizo because when you're looking at gene promoters and you're doing these mechanistic studies, you have to constantly be checking for all these different DNA binding sites and trying to see which of these could be regulating the gene that you're interested in. Yeah, so are there like any groups of target genes that um, Kaizo like specifically re regulates? And um, do you know maybe um, implicating these target genes, how they're involved in the progression of cancer? Um, well, some of the, most of the target genes that we looked at so far, we were focusing on wind signaling target genes just because when we were doing a lot of our initial studies in the frog model system, the Xenopus model system, we knew that, you know, um, wind beta-catenin signaling in that system um, affected duplicate axis formation. And so since part of our hypothesis was that Kaizone P120 were analogous to beta-catenin and TCF, and we, you know, we, we weren't sure of were they going to antagonize wind signaling or were they going to complement and synergize with wind signaling. So it turns out in some scenarios it synergizes with wind signaling, in other scenarios it does not. 
it's not a straightforward simple protein to study yeah. but it, it it makes for yeah an interesting story when we finally get it resolved and unraveled it'll make a lot of sense i'm sure and and then we'll be like nobel prize yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, just it just goes to show the challenges involved with you know cancer research and just research in general. There's just so much that there exactly. remains to be elucidated, right? Exactly. So which is why everyone says, well, why don't we know? You know, why don't we have a cure? Why can't you just make a drug against that protein or whatever? And it's like, well, you know, because proteins do more than one thing. It depends on the context. It depends on the cell type. It depends on the tissue. And so we might know what it's doing in the bedroom, for example, but if we don't know what it's doing in another room, and if we target it in the bedroom, then it might, the whole house might fall apart. Like you just don't know, you know, so we need to know as much as possible about every protein that we're studying. And it's funny because when I write the Pfeiffer grants a few years ago, one of the reviewers said, she's been studying this for 20 years and she still doesn't know what it does. And I thought, well, that's really um, quite nasty of you to say as a reviewer considering that Sark, Ras, and Mick were discovered in the 1980s, and we still also don't know what <laughs> they do. So, you know, like those were the first oncogenes, and there are hundreds of labs around the world studying those three um, initial oncogenes to understand what they're doing. And this reviewer is calling me out for you know, <laughs> studying something for 20 years and then thinking, but there are not even 20 labs in the world studying Kaizo compared to Sark, Ras, and Mick. So, Anyway, it was, it was just kind of, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it just goes to show like, the, you know, the implications and the difficulty of research. Also because, you know, in research studies, you know, it's often controlled experiments. You can only look at one thing at a time, whereas, you know, in, the re in real life, there's so many different factors at play, right? Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. And just to jump back a bit, I just wanted to ask you a, quest uh, a question regarding triple negative breast cancer. Uh, so with what we've been discussing, we've, we've seen that overexpression of Kaizo is correlated with triple negative breast cancer. I just wanted you to, uh, inter just to let our viewers know what exactly is triple negative breast cancer and why it's named uh, that way. What makes it such an aggressive form of cancer? Right, so triple negative breast cancer or TMBC is one of the uh, of breast cancer subtype and breast cancers are classified based on the expression of three biomarkers at the moment. So they're diagnosed based on the expression of the estrogen receptor or ER receptor, progesterone receptor or PR, and the human epidermal growth factor receptor or HER2. So when a woman or a man um, finds a lump and they get a biopsy done and then ultimately a surgery, the tissue is processed and prepared in a way that it's embedded in wax and then you can slice a piece of that off and stain it for different proteins. And when that happens, the pathologist is looking to see is this piece of tissue taken from the breast expressing estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, or HER2. And so then a typical pathology report will say, you know, patient had two centimeter by two centimeter mass. Um, mass is ER positive, PR negative, HER2 negative, or mass is ER negative, PR negative, HER2 negative, or it's HER2 positive. And that, so that is where the term triple negative comes from. Tumors, breast tumors that lack all three proteins are triple negative. They're estrogen receptor negative, progesterone receptor negative, and HER2 negative. And the reason that's important is because the current drugs to treat breast cancer target tumors that are estrogen receptor positive or HER2 receptor positive. 
So when you have a triple negative breast cancer tumor, none of those proteins are expressed. So you cannot treat those patients with tamoxifen, which targets ER positive cells, or Herceptin, which targets HER2 positive cells. So patients can only be treated with what we call your standard chemotherapy of care or standard of care for chemotherapy, which kills every proliferating cell and not just the cells in the breast. So that's why it's called triple negative. That's also why it's very aggressive. Um, well, it's also why there's poor mortality because there's no specific drug treatment. The aggressiveness we think could be, that could be where Kaizo is playing a role because we know that Kaizo is regulating um, cell adhesion, we think, yeah. Yeah, so I think you talked about, yeah, how Kaizo has a role in TNBC. So um, can you um, elaborate on how um, it may play a role in the racial disparity of TNBC or triple negative yeah. breast cancer? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so we've done some studies where we found that if we removed Kaizo expression using a technique known as um, short inference RNA or siRNA, what we found was when we removed our depleted Kaizo expression generated um, clonal cell lines from a previously metastatic invasive breast cell line and then took those cells and injected them into mice, into the breast of mice, the, the, the mice injected with the parental triple negative breast cancer cells um, form a nice breast tumor and that tumor breaks away just like it does in humans and spreads to the lung and the liver. However, when we inject mice with the clones from that cell, those, those cells, where we had actually removed Kaizo expression, the tumors take a lot longer, first of all, to grow. The cells take forever to form a tumor. So that suggests that the removal of Kaizo in some way is preventing cell proliferation or inducing apoptosis because the tumor literally took four weeks longer to grow compared to the maternal uh, parental triple negative breast cancer cell line. But what we also found and were a little bit surprised to find is that those tumors also, even though they took longer to form and finally formed a mass of the same size as the parental TNBC cells, there was no metastasis to the lungs or the liver, suggesting that just the removal of Kaizo in that context was enough to prevent the tumor from spreading from the breast to the lungs and the liver, which was quite an exciting discovery, as you can imagine, because that suggests that maybe we could design a drug target that could, you know, um, basically target Kaizo and prevent, remove Kaizo expression or decrease Kaizo expression in, in tumors. And that would at least um, prevent or delay the spread to other organs. Awesome, awesome. Uh, a question that I wanted to ask you uh, in relation to the racial disparity with uh, these cancers and Kaizo, is there a hypothesis as to why these populations are predisposed to this type of breast cancer? Uh, aside from the fact, you know, that overexpression of, of uh, you know, Kaizo is correlated with these cancer phenotypes, is there like a genetic predisposition? Or I've heard there's also a hypothesis on uh, uh, chromatin, on, on sort of uh, epigenetic uh, modification. Is there any hypothesis des describing this? Yeah, we have lots of hypotheses and we're obviously now trying to test them. We don't know which one it is. Um, mm -hmm. It could be that there's an ancestral predisposition that maybe there is like we don't even know what's causing the high Kaizo expression among women of African ancestry. And it's not just in breast cancers, I should say. High Kaizo expression is found in many um, aggressive cancers. So it's found in aggressive prostate cancer. It's found in aggressive pancreatic cancer. So as I said, I think it's because it's somehow contributing to that um, defective cell adhesion process and therefore which contributes to the tumors being aggressive. 
the racial disparity is interesting because we find high Kaizo levels as well in prostate cancers of black men compared to white men. So Kaizo expression is somehow also correlating with the racial disparities in, in breast and prostate cancer. And obviously one of the studies we should do is look at, um, uh, look at a variety of cancers, not just those two, and see whether or not this racial disparity applies in all cancers, which would then, of course, give us a lot more insight into what Kaizo is doing and would suggest that, you know, maybe there is some ancestral pathway that just like the um, beta thalassemia gene in sickle cell, right, there was a benefit to that um, in Africa, but it's not beneficial in the context when you've got two copies of that gene. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe there's something about Kaizo from our ancestors that was beneficial in Africa, but when in the context of how we live now on our social structures, maybe it's causing cancer in the wrong setting or the right setting, depending on how you look at cancer. Yeah. Yeah. So if we were to try to, or um, based on your research, create a drug to, like you said, maybe target Kaizo, mm -hmm. Kaizo, um, would that be problematic for um, like chemotherapy is for normal pro proliferating cells? Like, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, so it's going to require a lot of creativity and being able to like target the drug just to the breast. Right. Mm -hmm. But I mean, okay. that's the beauty of science is like, there's so many cool and exciting technologies now where, you know, like maybe we could make a kind of drug where you just implant it into the breast region and then it's like a time release. So it's only releasing, you know, in the in the mammary um, fat pad or something over a certain like there's just so much creativity we could do. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, and like on that topic, um, so like the specificity of like only targeting um Kaiso, um, in terms of like creating overexpression lines or knockdown lines in a mouse model, how do you achieve like that specificity um in only, for example, in some of your studies, overexpressing um Kaiso in the breast tissue of a mouse? Yeah, so we haven't done any overexpression studies of Kaiso in in the mouse at the moment. Um, it's something that we would love to do, but we have overexpressed Kaizo in the intestines for our colon cancer project. And that's relatively easy to do and established to everyone. There's a plasmid containing the promoter for villain, which is only expressed in the intestines. So if we use that construct and to, you know, to insert our Kaizo gene, then when we um, make our mice, the mice only express Kaizo in the intestines. Now we've got the new CRISPR technology, which is even cooler and supposedly faster. I haven't tried it yet. We're about to embark on that journey. Um, and that would also allow us to, you know, manipulate Kaizo's gene expression even hopefully better and more efficiently than in the past. So those are experiments that we definitely plan to do. Right now, the only overexpressing model we've made is in the colon for Kaizo. And to build upon that uh, this that uh, discussion that you just brought up, we we want to transition now from triple negative breast cancer to the other sort of main projects that you do in the lab, which is regarding uh, uh, colon cancer, right? So could you also describe how Kaizo is implicated in inflammatory bowel disease, which you know leads to the development of uh, uh, I think colorectal cancer? Could you describe that sort of relationship? Yeah, so in so what so I said, well, actually, when we started the project, because of the links between beta catenin and TCF and weight signaling, we thought that Kaizo and P120 would actually just antagonize that pathway and that it would, and but it wasn't that simple. 
So, um, so that's what led us to um, creating our mouse model. We thought that if we overexpress Kaiser in the intestine, we would actually prevent colon cancer, since colon cancer is um, the downstream result of over constitutive wind signaling. But that didn't happen. Instead, what we found was that overexpression of Kaiser exacerbated colon cancer, and the mice had twice as many polyps and died a lot sooner. So that um, suggests that, and we, and we found that Kaiser overexpression was inducing inflammation. Many labs now recognize and acknowledge that a persistent state of inflammation is a risk factor for any type of cancer, not just colon cancer. So we think that Kaiser overexpression in various tumors, whether it's breast, prostate, pancreas, could be inducing an inflammatory response, which is then predisposing those cells to developing cancer. And again, another avenue of research for us and not that simple. <laughs> yeah, and that's very cool um, to see how Kaiso, this one discovery is really, um, has keeping a big- busy. <laughs> yeah, keeping you busy, super busy. Um, and also in um, colorectal cancer, um, we talked a lot about in this podcast so far about how um, adhesion is important or uh, Kaiso affects adhesion. So how um, is Kaiso's role in adhesion or epithelial integrity important for the development of colorectal cancer? Yeah, so it's a long, so in this situation, it's the same thing. We know that this high Kaiser expression is impacting the action, in this case, the subcellular localite. Again, it's a chicken and egg. We don't know which came first, but we're overexpressing Kaiser, and what we're seeing is a nuclear localization of, of P120 rather than a membrane localization, which means if it's in the nucleus, then it's not stabilizing E coherent at the membrane, which means that the membrane is going to be weaker. And, and so you're going to get what we call an um, epithelial barrier defect. So now you can get pathogens passing in and out of the gut when they shouldn't be, which will then induce inflammation. So it's <laughs> yeah. like <laughs> yeah. this chain reaction, right? Mm -hmm. And as I said, it's it's nice, it's nice, it's beautiful in a nerdy kind of way, but <laughs> challenging when you're trying to solve a puzzle, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. From a perspective, it's cool. But when you're you have students that are like they want data and they can't stand failure or not understand. <laughs> And it's not so much fun. Yeah. yeah, it's really interesting to see like the cell biology aspect of it is so cool, like seems so interesting. But then there's also the clinical, you know, implications exactly. about the unfortunate, you know, outcomes that happen to these patients that are suffering from it. So it's like, a, yeah, it's really interesting to see. And just for a clarification, we've been talking a lot about, you know, overexpression of Kaizo in these cancers. So does that just that implies that in healthy cells, there's always a low expression of Kaizo, correct? Exactly. You're so smart. You guys are such smart. <laughs> I mean, I'm just interested to also know. So, so if low levels, if if healthy baseline cells have low levels of Kaizo expression, I'm just curious. Have are you also investigated your cancer cells with underexpression of Kaizo? Um. So we have done some knockouts. I'm trying to remember. Gosh, it was so long ago. We've done, as I said, so the breast tumor cells that we put into the mice, those were knockouts. We have some knockout cell lines from our colon cancer cells. We haven't tried um, doing mouse model. We, like, we've made our Kaizo overexpressing mouse, but we haven't done a Kaizo depleted mouse. But one of my collaborators in Russia, he did generate a Kaizo null mouse, but he didn't really see any interesting phenotypes. And the other thing that we're realizing is that if you don't know what you're looking for, you'll say that there was no interesting phenotype, but there could have been something there that he didn't realize was a phenotype. 
Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Because even when we first made the Kaizo overexpressing mouse, the mice were healthy and they were living and we're like, oh, well, Kaizo expression doesn't even cause cancer, right? Like we were, you know, you're kind of hoping for something cool. And I think it was only, you know, when the pathologist looked at the tissues, the pathologist said, oh, but your mice have all, they all have intestinal inflammation. And it wasn't something that we would have looked for, right? So, you know, it'd be interesting now to go back to those Kaizo now mice tissues and, you know, maybe even get somebody that doesn't even know anything about Kaizo to just look at them and tell us what they see objectively because they're not going to be biased. They're not going to be looking for anything specific. They'll just be like, well, this is weird. This is different. Whereas when you're looking for a certain thing, you might miss something else because you don't think it's related or it's relevant, which is why I tell all my students, you record everything. <laughs> Definitely. You, you don't know what you don't know and you don't know what's going to you know, become important in five years when we develop new technologies and we look back and we're like, oh, that explains what we saw 10 years ago, right? But if you didn't write it down and record it, it's hard to link it back. So even, you know, my first couple years at Mac, we could never make Kaizo overexpressing cell lines. We just couldn't, they always died, right? And I kept telling my students, I think Kaizo is inducing apoptosis and nobody ever followed up on that observation. And it's only when I had the student blessing Basi Archibong that, and we were making the, as I said, the, the tumors in the mice, you know, when we saw that the Kaizo um, depletion cells had like very little, like took forever to grow. We were like, why are they not growing? You know, like, so then she started, we started linking the whole cell proliferation and apoptosis. And so there's, there's a lot there to look at. Yeah, definitely. And I think just our discussion now highlights the importance of like collaborations in the science world. And so um, have you had any, so I think you talked about um, your collaborators in Russia, but um, does your, do you work directly with doctors or how does your work um, translate in the clinical setting? So I collaborate with physicians in Barbados and Jamaica, Nigeria, because the triple negative tissues that we have are from those regions. Um, it's harder in Canada because the black women are all spread out. We don't all go to just one hospital. So it's not easy to just go to one hospital and get as many um, triple negative tumors from black women. We're all at different, you know, we all go to different hospitals. So it's been a bit more of a challenge to collect those tissues in Ontario. But in places like Barbados, Jamaica, Nigeria, like the majority of the women are black and there's only one or two hospitals. So it makes it super easy to get, you know, the sample size that you need to do the studies. Um, here in Canada, I, I guess, informally co- collaborate with um, oncologists at the Jorvinsky Cancer Center. And so one of the things we want to do is look at colorectal tumors in Hamilton to look for Kaiso expression in just general colon tumors in this region and maybe even in inflammatory bowel disease tissues, except they seldom do biopsies of IBD patients. So it's hard to have IBD tissues to actually look at. Um, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's great to see that, you know, the work that you do in the lab does have, you know, implications in the clinical setting, which is awesome to hear because at the end of the day, you want to help these cancer patients to the best of your ability, right? And in addition to your research, uh, or aside from your research, actually, does your lab also carry out any sort of cancer awareness or educational work- workshops to raise awareness on this type of cancer that you research, such as triple negative breast cancer, and even the different forms of colon cancer that you've talked about? 
Yeah. So in 2015, 2016, I started partnering with Leela Springer at the Olive Branch of Hope, or Tobo as we call it. And she and another lady, uh, Winsome Johnson, co-founded the Olive Branch of Hope 20 years ago when they were both diagnosed with breast cancer as black women. And they found that um, there were very few support services for black women. And in their case, they were black Christian and deeply spiritual women. And so they co-founded the Olive Branch of Hope to support other black women going through that journey. Also because in black communities in Africa and the Caribbean, no one likes to talk about cancer. No one even likes to like to say the word cancer. And they felt that that was contributing to the poor survival rates of women in the black community. And they wanted to raise awareness and get people to talk about it more, to go get tested earlier because they knew that earlier detection would enhance your um, survival. So I've been working for, with them for almost seven years and we've been doing cancer outreach um, and awareness programs. We learned after the first one or two not to put the word cancer in the title again because people would not come if they saw the word cancer. So we typically call them health and wellness um, workshops. And so what we do instead of the entire workshop being just about cancer, we now have it. It's a more um, integrated, well-rounded type workshop where we talk about as many chronic diseases as possible. So typically there'll be a session on diabetes, a session on heart and stroke or cardiovascular disease, and a session on, um, on, on cancer, and a session on healthy lifestyles. And so we try to make it more about health and wellness in general, not just cancer. And we find that we get more attendance then. And as you know, all of these chronic diseases tend to be interconnected anyway. So it's like, it's just, in the end, it's better for us to get the, the attendees to think about their health in all different aspects. Yeah, that's great. Like to see your lab and, and being involved in the community and providing support. Um, so I guess we've talked so much about Kaiso, the different cancers it's involved in. And just to see that over 20 years, this journey to find out the role of um, Kaiso um, as a transcription factor. So I guess um, a kind of a, like a ending question before we get to our last section is, um, where do you see your research going in the future? So what are maybe some long-term goals you have for um, finding more out about Kaiso and maybe getting more involved in the community? Um, well, definitely we want to find out what is causing Kaiso to be highly expressed. That is one of the million dollar questions right now. Is there some kind of upstream signaling pathway that is constitutively activating Kaiso in these aggressive tumors? Is there some um, mutation in the promoter of Kaiso where it's constitutively now turned on in these tumors, which is still a result of a, a signaling pathway? Mm -hmm. Or is there, you know, copy number variations or duplications of the Kaiso gene that's leading to its high expression? Like we just have no idea. So that's one of the things that's like top of mind for all of us. What is causing Kaiso to be highly expressed? And also the reviewers of our grants, they, they all want to know. <laughs> so yeah. Um, and, and then of course to, you know, maybe develop Kaiso as a, even if we can't develop a drug right now to, to target Kaiso, perhaps we can develop a kit where you use Kaiso expression as a biomarker for letting you know that you're at high risk of a metastatic or aggressive tumor, right? Just like how we screen women with BRCA1 and we say, well, you're at high risk because of this mutation. And then they have the choice to decide whether or not to, you know, have a preemptive mastectomy or to just risk it and wait to see if they get cancer. 
So that's one. Um, so those are some of the things. We also, I mean, I haven't talked about it much, but we also have evidence that Kaizo is involved in vertebrate development using frog models. And now we've got this really, really interesting case study of Kaizo, a Kaizo mutation in a, a, um, in a young male that's led to developmental disorders in this young male. And so that's another area that's literally taking off in the last month <laughs> in my lab. And so that's, and then trying to see how that connects back to cancer and signaling is going to be something that we're really interested and excited about because what we find in cancer might help us understand what's happening in this young male and vice versa. If we can understand the mutation present in this young male, it might help us understand what's going on in our cancer situation. So it's actually one of the most exciting things that we've been working on the last um, two to three months. Awesome. Thank you for sharing, Dr. Daniel. And we hope that, you know, in this long term, you're able to accomplish these goals because, you know, as with all research, you're always limited by time and resources, right? And so we hope that you're able to accomplish all of this long term, uh, like goals that you have. And you share the progress with us. And hopefully, you're able to find out what causes this Kaiser overexpression. And well, by then, you guys will be graduated and you'll either be researchers or doctors <laughs> or physiotherapists or lawyers or who knows. <laughs> yeah, the research is never ending. And that's the story at the end of the day. But just to transition to the last section of our podcast, we can't forget about the role of undergrads, right? Because we know that they're integral to your research lab. So my first question to you to you on this topic is how have you know undergrad students have been how have undergrad students been involved in your research and how important have they been in helping to advance the knowledge on cancer biology, especially on these forms of cancers that you know affect these certain racialized populations like triple negative breast cancer. Yeah, so like most professors at McMaster, many of us have had undergraduate students working in our lab since we started as professors. So I've had undergrad students, I would say, almost every single summer that I've been a professor, and um, I always have undergraduate thesis students. So we always pair the undergraduate students with a senior grad student. And if they generate good, clean, interpretable data, they get co-authorship on publication. So I have about four or five former students that of, of my thesis students that are co-authorship on some of our major papers because they they really sig contributed significantly to that. Um, so yeah, and also, you know, we hope to persuade or convince many undergrads as well that a research career is a really viable career and that without the research, the physicians actually can't do a lot in the future because we need those research discoveries to lead to new drugs, new treatments. Etc. So I'm always trying to encourage students to consider MD PhD programs where you combine the research with the clinical, um, you know, because our original physicians were all researchers without PhDs, right? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> they were, they were all because they were always in a lab dabbling and coming up with with drugs for their patients because they needed to treat their patient and there were no research labs back in the day. The physician was the researcher and he or she did the research to to treat their patient, to figure out how best to treat their patient. So it would be nice to have more clinicians doing research. I agree. I think that's great. So um, aside from the summer projects that students can take on in your lab, do you accept volunteers, students um, in co-op placements, um, yeah. also project courses? Definitely. So pre-pandemic, I did all of the above. <laughs> Post-pandemic, I have only taken thesis students because we've had limited, we're allowed limiting numbers in the lab. 
and the graduate students take priority, they have to go in, they have to finish their thesis, right? So since the pandemic, I have taken no volunteers whatsoever, um, unfortunately, and I've taken no third year. I think I took one third year research project since the pandemic, but pretty much for the past few years, I've focused solely on fourth year honors thesis students. Yeah, but prior to the pandemic, I always had volunteers. I always had three unit project students. Awesome, awesome. Uh, just to build on that, could you uh, give some examples of some past projects that your undergraduate students have taken on in the past, just to give our listeners an idea of, you know, what sort of, or what to expect uh, working in your research lab? All the projects I've talked about today, the undergrad students have been involved in. So they're on publications about Kaizo, for example, in hypoxia. They're on the mm -hmm. public, there's an um, undergrad student on the publication where we show that the Kaizo depleted breast cell lines don't metastasize to the lung and liver. I've got an undergrad student that's on the paper, one of our early, early papers showing um, the, um, basically mapping the nuclear localization of Kaizo and P120. Like, so they've been involved in all the projects that I've <laughs> talked about. It's hard mm -hmm. to, to say, yeah, well, yeah. this is the one project where the undergrads are doing well. Like they've been mm -hmm. involved in all the projects and it literally comes down to how well, like whether they generated good data good interpretable data that's worth publishing. Yeah. yeah, that's great to hear that the undergrads are super involved. So I guess the, I mean, the listeners really want to hear is, um, what do you look for in a potential applicant and um, who's in, interested in joining your lab and what advice do you have for these students? So, um, so I have a very strange set of interview questions, which, you know, to help me find the best student. Um, because I fully appreciate that many students want to go to med school and I don't have an issue with that. But what I do take issue with are students who want to go to med school and are, are using research labs, not just mine, but any research lab solely as a stepping stone to med school without without appreciating that it's a privilege to be in any professor's lab. The university gives us zero money to actually take an undergrad student into our lab. All the research funding we have from the government is for graduate students, not for undergrads. So when we take an undergrad student, we are basically using money that was dedicated for graduate students to help an undergraduate student get that course requirement to help them get to med school or whatever. And so my pet peeve are students who take advantage of that and, and have an entitlement sense of I'm entitled to that A or whatever because I want to go to med school or law school or dentistry. And I'm like, that's fine, but I want you to be in the moment, enjoy the journey of research and put 200% into the research project, because that will also make you a better physician in the long run. Right. And I, so I try to ask questions to get at that, but I sometimes fail miserably and students get into the lab that are clearly not interested in research. And it's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Awesome. And is there any, uh, as a last final question that I wanted to ask, is there any sort of advice you would like to give to potential uh, students aside from, you know, being interested in the research? Is there any sort of prerequisite courses that you require or any previous research experience? For, for my lab, no, there's no real prerequisite course. Like one of my mantras or my mantra is it's your attitude and not your aptitude that determines your altitude. So I would much prefer an enthusiastic, hardworking student who doesn't really know how to pipette and I can teach them to pipette, but to have a student who's really good at pipetting, but has a horrible personality, I can't change you to make you a nice person. So, right. So I would say, if you want to go in someone's lab, you need to go in with an open mind. You need to go in willing to act. 
You need to go in thinking that you are there to help the professor succeed. And in helping that professor succeed, you yourself will succeed. And that professor will help you achieve your goals by writing excellent letters of reference. But if you go in thinking, well, I'm entitled to this and I'm entitled to whatever, then that may not work that well. And then we have what I call lose-lose. You're miserable, professor's miserable. That's lose-lose, right? But if you go in with a really open mind and you go in thinking, I am here to help this professor publish one, okay, I was going to say something, KCAS publication, then, <laughs> right? Then you will publish an awesome publication and that will help you in whatever your career aspirations are going to be. And that professor will write you the most amazing reference letter. So I think going in with the with an attitude of, I am here to help this professor and the graduate students make a significant discovery rather than thinking, well, I'm an undergrad. I don't know anything. No, we are going to teach you the techniques. We want you to have an open mind and develop your real strong critical thinking skills. And that curiosity that we all had as kids that made us love science, right? Okay. Yeah. And like with that, that really brings us to the end of our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we really had a great time discussing your research in cancer biology and we learned a lot. So we hope our listeners take away as much as we did. And again, it was a pleasure to have you on and thank you for joining us once again. Thank you for having me and good luck with the end of term coming up, all of your exams and your assignments. And just as I said, go back to that childlike wonder of curiosity when you're studying and, and forget about the grades and just think <laughs> of it from the wonder and the joy of science and how amazing science and the world is. Most definitely. Thank you, Dr. Daniel. Really appreciate it. You're welcome.